Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. has famous quotes about the impact of silence. Our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. And also, in the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. We are recording this episode just days before the presidential election. This country is obviously extremely divided, and some schools and districts are having emergency meetings to discuss how to respond to students and families after the election. Many are proclaiming the need to remain neutral, and also the belief in neutrality permeates education in general, that grading, standards, and discipline are objective, the belief that teachers should not talk about their private lives, that they should just stay out of the political arena in order to remain neutral. Does remaining neutral in politically charged times mean being silent? And if it does, isn't silence being complicit with the beliefs of the majority? I spoke with my friend William Yepes about the idea of neutrality. He's a Spanish teacher in Cambridge, Massachusetts, who identifies as Latinx. I started by asking him, what does neutral even mean? It's very interesting to start from definitions because, you know, I am a language teacher. So I always, uh, I'm always thinking about uh, the meaning of words and labels and uh, where do they come from and how do we use those? And when you think about like neutral, it comes from the Latin and it's a word that means uh, neural and it's like uh that doesn't have a gender, that is not masculine nor feminine. So it's very interesting that that's a word that we have uh, chosen to use or define when someone doesn't take a position. So basically that's uh, the idea of like people understand of neutrality, is that you don't understand, you're not taking a position. And it coming from that like Latin root, this is, is not nor masculine nor feminine. So it's something that is undefined. And I find that very interesting, especially because to talk about uh, neutrality, we have to talk about bias and how bias uh, informs our thinking process and our decision making. So in order to talk about uh, neutrality in the classroom, we first need to address these uh, ideas of what is uh, what is bias and then how it takes uh, like informs or impacts the idea of neutrality. So when thinking about bias, it's also um, a word that comes from the French and it means like a, a slope. And so when you think about bias, I love to think for, from the perspective of fabric and how the thread is in line horizontal and vertically. But when you cut something at the bias, you fold it uh, in a slanted way. And what that does is it gives a given to the material. So the material can be pulled to one side or to the other side and fit perfectly. So we are like we have been informed to believe that bias is bad. That like if you're biased, you're just leaning into one thing. So there is this idea that you shouldn't have a bias and uh, you should be neutral. And that is what I believe is at the core of the essence: is to understand 
where my biases stand and when I know where I am standing with my bias. So then it's easier for me to acknowledge a position that is different. And in order to understand that position, I'm going to have to use some wiggle room. So therefore, when I think of uh, neutrality, yeah, people believe that you have to be neutral and to be neutral is not to take a position. But the reality is, but not taking a position, we are making a statement and we're already taking a position. But what it does is impacts a single vision or what we call like normal or the position of the majority or the ruling factor. Okay. I need to slow down here because you've already said so much. First of all, I love your fabric analogy because I know your mother is a seamstress. I wonder if that's why you think about fabric. It's such a cool idea. But it also sounds like you're saying bias is a good thing. It allows it allows for some give and take. So can you say more about that? Because I think when most people think about bias, they think about bias being bad. We shouldn't have bias. Like what it is important is that we acknowledged it. That and bias is informed by your experiences, uh, your moral and cultural compasses, what you've been informed, like how you have grown up. The uh, even the books that you read inform your bias. So when I go into a conversation or a class or. Uh, and, or a relationship, and I'm going to try to pretend that I do not have a bias, it means that I'm negating, I'm not recognizing my background, my history, my experiences, and all the enrichment and rich opportunities that have informed how I think. And that's what it has become problematic because people want to hide their bias. And what I believe is I disclose right away my positionality. What is my story? What is my journey? And the things that have informed the way I see the world. And that way I recognize my bias and and I let my... um, the person listening or the person with whom I have in a conversation, establishing a relationship, understand where my worldviews are coming from. And I also create a space and, a, and an opportunity for this other person to think about where their thinking process is coming from and how it's been informed. And when then we can acknowledge those different places. Okay, so we are all biased by our experiences and we need to make that explicit in order to understand what influences our decision making and how we define our reality. Acknowledging we all have bias means that we can't be neutral. So does that mean you talk to your students about where your bias comes from? You tell them about your story? Um, Absolutely, yes. Uh, Well, I've been an educator for 26 years, and that was never, uh, not never, that was not always the case. For a long time, I didn't disclose many pieces of uh, my identity and and who I was, because I believed that I needed to be neutral and impartial. What I didn't know is by doing that, 
I was、uh, sacrificing my own humanity. And it took me many years to understand that and how I was standing up in, in the classroom. And what I was、uh, teaching, sometimes it was、uh, completely against of who I am. And, but I thought I needed to be impartial. And, and I thought I, needed, I had to teach in this very specific curriculum without even questioning the curriculum or thinking how that curriculum have、uh, come to be. And now I have a completely different、uh, understanding of who I am and why、uh, my story and, and my journey. It's important it has a place. At the same time, that I present my story and my journey because I want my students, my,、uh, my class, to think about themselves too, to think about what's their story. What are the things that、uh, they feel informed their identity? And this is a question that I, I always place into my students. The funny thing about identity, right, is that it's not only how we perceive ourselves, but it's also how we are perceived. And I, it just struck me when you said that, that you telling your own story minimizes. The way people put their perceptions on you, right? Because you're telling them who you are. And so there's less room for people to, like you said, to put on you something that isn't true. You're letting them know up front. I, I feel like that's such a considered such risky behavior from a teacher, right? Because there's also the power between teacher and student. And so often it's thought that if we, Say anything about what we believe or who we are, we divulge too much information about our personal lives that we're somehow trying to influence our students because of the power differential. So, can you just talk about that a little bit? Well, it's very interesting that you use those words to name it because historically, we know of a word that has been used to talk about when、uh, someone with power.、Um, Present an idea that makes it believe as、uh, an absolute truth, and that's called indoctrination. And indoctrination comes from this idea that、uh, a doctrine, something that be undeniably true, and、um, whoever is listening has to believe it and, and take it without question. And that is the difference between what I do when I present my story and、uh, Disclose pieces of my identity because I am not presenting this as a universal truth. I, ex I ex explicitly tell my students the idea of my story in a million stories. So, my truth, then it becomes contextualized to my, my experience and my journey. So, it is my truth, but therefore, it's not a universal truth. And by presenting it this way, I create a space for my students to think about their own personal truth. And that's why I, I like to think that、uh, what I do is completely different from、uh, indoctrinating students. I am posing questions to them to allow to think of themselves 
even in forms that they never thought before, which in a way is kind of what language does. And being a, a teacher of a second language, that is a possibility. And I know that for fact, like growing up in Colombia, uh, Spanish was my first language. And within my language, which is like, we always like to think about our first language is the language that is connected to love because it comes from our caregivers, the people who raise us, who give, who show us first this idea of love. And yet in this first language, uh, a very important piece of who I am, there was not a word that showed me any love or, or care the word that defined that piece of my identity, it was a word that was charged with a uh, hate. William is talking about the words for gay in Spanish. Marica or maricón is something close to faggot in English. And there are others. So for a long time, I grew up without even recognizing a piece of my identity because the words that were used to describe this were so charred that for me, this charge they had, it wouldn't allow me to exist. And when I learned English, it's my second language, I learned another word that didn't have all that connotation for me as a second language learner. So before I, I was able to recognize myself as a, uh, as a homosexual, uh, as a queer man, in Spanish, the words that were to the, like name that were so charged that that's why I could never use them. But once I learned the term gay and I understood that the meaning of gay was was happy, it had a different connotation. Granted, I didn't grow up in the States, so I didn't have the background of the word and how that word had a different charge for a person who was speaking for the first time. So English was a word that gave me, in a way, uh, freedom to identify myself without the charge of like, uh, guilt and shame. And so that's a, that's a possibility that I always uh, like to highlight my students, that when we learn the second language, we're not only learning a language to communicate with somebody else or to hear uh, somebody else's story. That's the, at the basic of what we do. But, but learning a second language is also an opportunity to discover ourselves. By the power of words and language, to discover pieces of our identity that we were not aware of or that had a completely different meaning in our own language. I know that this is a concept that a lot of teachers struggle with, is that you know, we're there to give the wisdom and, and to teach and students are there to receive and to learn. And, but what it sounds like you're doing is giving students tools to be critical thinkers, right? Like this is my story. It's not, it's a story. There are multiple stories. Now you have to decide what's true for you. And it's also the possibility of giving them the space to, uh, have that critical thinking. I think you and I are in agreement in terms of those are the skills. That's what we want is actually to to create students who will question our authority in some ways, right? And um, 
do you assume that I give you a book that it's a good book because as the teacher, I gave it to you? And should you think more critically about it or a piece of information, right? And and to understand why, because one of the like important things of critiquing something is when you critique, it's because you are asking questions that are making you reason with that concept or with that subject from a different perspective. So a critique doesn't come just from as an opinion, which is completely different. And that's what I feel that sometimes, like right now in society and education, is what is uh, difficult to navigate because people confuse critiquing with opinions. And opinions are just informed from, sometimes are emotional. They're just like, but if I am critiquing something, it means that I'm questioning. And by questioning, it means that my curiosity is driving me to uh, deepen into my knowledge. And in order to deepen into knowledge, it means that I have to explore, that I have to uh, delve with the idea, with uh, investigating, researching, asking, hearing, reading, listening, all of those different skills that uh, as educators we want to uh, stress in the classroom and, and motivate students to use them uh, constantly. You talked about being a gay man, and and I know that coming out to your students in that way, like it is viewed as a political issue, right? To be gay, to to accept gayness, um, is considered a political issue. As is, I know um, you were undocumented in this country, and that's another issue that is considered political. So what would you say to parents who say, stop trying to make your classroom political? This is where I base my my practice right now, because it, it wasn't always this way. Um, and what I always disclose to parents is that my classroom is a place where um, Curiosity is welcome, and questioning is a mast. And I ask questions, I uh, welcome questions, and I also create a space where we think about how do we ask questions and why do we ask questions. And and I I do that because I truly believe that I don't have the answer, but that together we can discover. We can discover opportunities. We can discover reasons. We can discover uh, connections. And maybe we're able to uh, unwrap the impact and systems and many other things. And I have been... uh, I have been told in the past that that's a naive view of the world, that actually what I am doing is indoctrinating. And 
I don't agree with uh, with that particular view because indoctrination will be if I have shown my students my view and tell them to look at the world only from my perspective and believe only in my perspective. So, and and you, I know you introduced a little bit of, of my journey. So I earlier said that I grew up in Colombia and in, I grew up in a, a big, the third largest city, but I grew up in a very poor uh, conditions. And at a early age, I learned to disguise pieces of my identity. And one of those first pieces of my identity that I disguised was uh, where I was coming from. Um, after walking every single day for uh, five uh, miles to get to school, uh, I will do it with shoes that will get uh, super muddy and dirty because the streets of my neighborhood were not paved. And once I get on the side of the city that had city lights and w running water and paved streets, so I will change my shoes and put these old pair of shoes in a bag inside my backpack. So my backpack was always heavy. And I finished middle school and high school and never any of my teachers or my classmates ever knew that the heavy backpack that they taunted me for, thinking like uh, I was, uh, in Spanish, they call me uh, come libros, uh, book, uh, bookworm, I think is it. Because I, I was, uh, I am a smart person and I was a very dedicated student. So that's what they call me. But actually, I wasn't carrying books because I couldn't even afford uh, textbooks. I couldn't afford notebooks. But the heaviness of my bag was my my shoes. And nobody ever knew from where I was coming because I was always like very clean, nicely dressed, shoes, clean. And, and I realized that was my first training on disguising a piece of my identity that later also include uh, religion, it add on to sexual orientation, and throughout my life, many times and different moments in my life, there was always a different piece that I was hiding so I could make everybody else feel comfortable around me. My social class, my sexual orientation, my immigration status. And yet when I came to the U.S. Uh, with that idea of hoping to be um, an open uh Teachers. I've been a teacher for 13 years in Colombia, but I was a closeted uh, gay teacher and um, living a very successful life, working at uh, international schools in my in my town, but still feeling that I was not fulfilling my like or living my full self. And I came to the U.S. in the pursuit of that, like hoping to be able to be my full self and. I learned on my first year teaching in the in the U.S. Uh, that not everywhere in the U.S. it was okay to be an openly gay teacher. And after my first year teaching, the um, the head of the school uh, priest uh, told me that I had six days to leave the country because the school no longer was going to uh, sponsor me for my uh, work permit. And that catapulted uh, my journey 
into uh, an undocumented immigrant. And I learned as I entered the United States that I was not uh, only a Colombian anymore, that I was also a Latino, which I didn't understand uh, early on. I, I always identify as Colombian, but once I... I landed at the Miami airport. I remember like that label first came to me. And for many years, I didn't understand the complexity of what it means to be Latino in the United States. And I was navigating uh, my uh, immigration status, uh, language, and, and, and sexual orientation and gender. was able to find lasting love with a man when he moved to Boston. And while American society had become much more tolerant of same-sex relationships, gay marriage still wasn't legal yet. If William had been straight, he could have become a citizen through marriage. But that road was blocked for him. Not only was I oppressed because I was an immigrant, uh, but I was an immigrant undocumented, and I was a gay immigrant undocumented for whom the possibility to solve his status was not was not an existing one. So once I was able to get married, I um, was able to recover my legal status, and I found um, my second official teaching job in the United States. With the difference that for the first time after 20 years of a teacher, Eight of those that were um, undercover, undocumented. I was entering a community completely um, transparently about every single piece of my identity. So I enter a school as a gay married man, as a Latino Colombian immigrant gay married man. And and that was a transformative experience. Yet, there was a piece that I hadn't realized yet. And that piece, as I discover that what it meant to be a Latino, what it meant to be an immigrant, what it meant to be a gay man, what it meant to be a bilingual person, yet, I didn't understand the responsibility and the power of action. So I, those were identities that I carry, but I didn't thought of those. I didn't think of those pieces of identity as a motivation to action. I just thought that there were pieces of me. I wasn't just an identity that in my experience, embracing my identity it meant that I needed to take an action for others that were coming behind me, for others that probably have the same pieces of identity or different pieces of identity, but for whom recognition, reaffirmation, and, uh, and the honoring of their humanity was not clear. And, and that's where I'm standing now as a openly uh, Latinx, gay, men, dual citizen, bilingual, that my role 
in this nation that I have become part of it as a citizen is that I need to uh, act. Because the difference from someone who's been born in the United States and someone that decides to become a citizen of the United States is that we love this nation not because somebody told us to love this nation. We made the decision to love this nation in spite of that this nation has not always shown love to us. William is quoting James Baldwin and tells me just how grateful he is for the scholarly work of people of color that have given language to the idea of critique as a form of patriotism. We're recording this a couple days before the next election. And in the last election, I was a teacher at a school, and I remember um, being told that we needed to be neutral the day after the election, that we couldn't show any sort of emotion about what had taken place, and that we were to remain neutral in order to make all of our students feel safe. And I remember having an undocumented student who was crying through the whole class. And uh, I took him out to the hallway and he said, you know, my family's gonna have to leave. And I think about what does it mean to be neutral? Who has the luxury to be neutral? What does that even mean? And isn't silence a form of being complicit, saying it's okay, and and I agree, unless you say otherwise. It's it's the same feeling I have when people say to me, oh, I'm apolitical. I think, oh, how nice that you have the luxury to not need to be involved in politics, right? So election date four years ago, it, it was a turning point in my life, because I remember uh, 10.30, my husband decided to go to bed because he, was, he decided that he couldn't take it anymore. That doubts he does. I, I can't watch this anymore. And I remember I was glued to the TV. And I stay up until three in the morning because I was watching what was happening in front of me. And I kept on hoping that for some magical reason, something different was was going to happen. And the reason why I was hoping for something different to happen, it was because the person that was looking as being the winner of that election, it was the person who had, it during his campaign, say that all Latino immigrants, Mexican immigrants are... Uh, the word he used, rapist, and 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 all these like dirty and and bad hombres and like all these like horrible things he said, and I knew that he's also talking about me, and it forced me to make a decision. And I I, I realized that 
I needed to become a citizen of this nation because I needed to have the same guarantees as my husband. And I made the decision to uh, become a citizen. And the next morning, he asked me if I still wanted to live in this country. And I was like, my life is in this country. My love, he is my love. And, and the life that we have built was still here. So I, of course, I wanted to still be here. I just didn't want to be unprotected. And once I got to school, I saw the same that things that you saw in your school within my students. And I saw students crying and I saw students celebrating. I sat them around a the table and I said, we're going to take a minute to just silently process. And then I said to them, this is the reality. Today, you have woken up to understand that your reality is not the only reality in this nation. We are in Massachusetts, where we like to believe that most of the necessities are covered for everybody around our society. We, we already had universal health care, and we like to believe that here in Massachusetts, the best education with its issues and its problems, but it's one of the best educations in the nation. So we like to believe that here we have everything covered. And I said, and we have discovered that that is not the reality of every single state or place in this union. What we have to think about is what are the basic necessities? And we have to think about the Maslow pyramid for whom Food, shelter is not at the table every single day as a secure thing that anyone can come to them with any message of hate or whatever they want to use that the necessity is so big that they're going to believe that. So when I think today in being uh, political, I don't think about being political from us and them, which is what right now the social media is telling us, which is what now the news and the media is telling us. It's them and us. No, it's not them and us. It's the fact that we have not been able to create a space and a table to recognize the needs of others. That was William Yepes, a Spanish teacher and dear friend who teaches in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Talking to William always reminds me of the urgency of speaking up and taking action. How can we, as white teachers, especially white, hetero, and cisgendered teachers with social capital to spend, take action to challenge the notion of neutrality in schools? Can we reframe social issues as human rights and not political? And how did allowing hate, discrimination, and bigotry become political issues in the first place? Messages about what is normal and okay are relentless in today's media, and we need the next generation to be critical thinkers and also to take action. Students who can discern what and whose perspective is being elevated and who is ignored or not represented at all. I am so grateful that William is open with his story, 
not only to make space for his students to consider who they are in the world, but also to have a model of what bravery and joy looks like. This episode was sponsored by the Eastern Educational Equity Collaborative and was edited by Stephen Smith. Our music was written and performed by Henry Needham. I'm Jenna Chandler-Ward, and this is Teaching While White.